It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Limberg, and with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello everybody. Today, I wanted to uh, dive into a different city. That's right, you heard me today. Today, it's not Odd Pittsburgh. It is Odd Allegheny. <laughs> Old Allegheny City. That's right, Old Allegheny City. So, for 67 years... There was another city right across the river in today's what we call Northside. Uh, but that was for, for almost 70 years, a completely separate city government, mayors, churches, the diocese of Allegheny. You had um, well, sports teams were born there, of course. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to somebody. I'm like, the Pirates technically, you know, are, I mean, really, they were Alleghenies, you know. So, Lee, um, how did... Uh, and we're not going to really talk about because there is going to be a different episode where we will talk about the annexation of Allegheny City and how it was all incorporated into Pittsburgh. But they had their own history, their own stories, their own characters, their own uh, legends and tales and and uh, experiences that were separate from the city of Pittsburgh. So now I, we always mention stuff that happened in Allegheny City, but uh, not in this level of detail <laughs> that we're going to do today. Was Allegheny City bigger than Pittsburgh at one point or no? No. So Allegheny City was always smaller. Um, it, it was the same time period that Pittsburgh was starting to be settled. So was Allegheny City. And um, it really has to do with, uh, well, you'll find out some of these tales because I'm going to talk about them. Uh, but it had to do with a lot of land there uh, that was mainly Native American land. Okay. So downtown Pittsburgh, while still Native American land, was kind of the first to be settled there. And then people were like, well, you know, across the river, that looks pretty nice over there. <laughs> a lot of good woods or whatever. And uh, But, of course, across the river, or in the middle of the river, where about PNC Park and Heinz Field is today, there was islands, including that Smoky Island that we've talked about, which is where um, Native Americans used to uh, torture people <laughs> in full view of Fort Pitt. Um, yeah, that's burning, in a previous episode. That's right, burning people at the stake, uh, making them uh, run the gauntlet. Uh, so fun times over there. Uh, however, the Native Americans knew that uh, they were not to venture into the woods or to settle on any other land over there and uh, on what we today we call the north side because it was unconsecrated ground and known as the dark territory. What does unconsecrated ground mean? Um, say you are a hunter and a white hunter and you go over there and you kill a deer and you just take it or you leave it there or you take it for your family or something or do whatever you need to do to it, and you did not sacrifice it to the great god Manitou or whatever god they happened to be worshiping at the time. <laughs> um, and uh, therefore, the the spirit of the animal is trapped and released, uh, not released. And the Native Americans, when they would kill, they would basically have an offering you know, to whatever god they believed in. And uh, because that did not happen with European settlers, it became unconsecrated. Yes. Gotcha. So, I came across the book. I was looking for things to talk about, and I know I know I always want to do an episode about old, old Allegheny. But where do you start? You know, with these tales and stories, and and of course you could just go Wikipedia, right, and start reading down the list. Be like, oh, this person's from here, that person's from there. You know, uh, whatever the case may be. But um, I wanted to get a different type of perspective, a perspective that we've uh, we've kind of delved into before when it comes to memoirs. Okay, and uh, there was this guy named William M. Rimmel, 
who, uh, born 1896, okay, believe it or not, got a job when he was just 15 years old writing for the Pittsburgh Gazette Times. Uh, and then by 1907, he was a full-time writer and eventually became uh, a, a entire uh, city editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette by the time he retired from the paper in 1962. He, uh, during his long career, uh, and by the way, he died in 1988. So 1896 to 1988, this man lived a full life. And he was on that kind of last generation before uh, all the technology wave came around and industry heavy, you know, the uh, the future, <laughs> you yeah. know, would come around. He was one of those people that got to experience the past and see these old timers firsthand. And, uh, and being a naturally born writer, a good one too at that, he was able to uh, put this doll down in a little memoir that he calls The Allegheny Story. And it's filled with different little chapters about characters that he came across, uh, some infamous and famous uh, Allegheny citizens uh, who we will talk about. And uh, and I kind of just want to read a little bit from his book. Some some of these chapters are just a couple paragraphs long, you know, and, uh, and each one's fascinating and strange and unusual. And I kind of picked the best of the best. So this book is called The Allegheny Story. Okay, it was published in the early 1980s. It's out of print, but you could pr- probably find it online. It's called uh, by William Rimmel. But anyways, I'm going to talk about a strange uh, kind of circumstance that that happened in Allegheny City while he was living there, and that was all of the strange and unusual suicides. Mm. Yeah, so I'm not starting at a happy place, but I wanted to start in the, the deepest, darkest place uh, just to kind of talk about this strange oddity that appeared in the newspapers in Allegheny City. So he goes on to say that Northside was a very happy place years ago. Many German folk songs echoed through Spring Hill, Spring Garden, and Troy Hill. Happy laughing crowds filled the scores of turnverines and singing societies in the back district, and sounds of the accordions could be heard in, in any backyard on a warm summer night. Sounds like a cool sounds place. Sounds like a lovely evening. Right, right. Brewery wagons delivering kegs of beer on Fridays were familiar sights. For the men who worked in the packing plants, tanneries, and soap factories loved their beer and believed in bottling their own brew. And on warm Sunday afternoons, you'd find them in backyards drinking beer with their friends and neighbors. But Northside has another side. The side was gloomy. And on dark, rainy days, the residents became so despondent that they often ended their lives. These suicides were so numerous in one year that a councilman introduced legislation making it unlawful to sell rope. They said such a law would make Allegheny the laughing stock of the country if, if so passed. Pittsburgh newspapers played up the stories, and from then on, for months, when an Alleghenian ended his life, it was front-page news in the Pittsburgh papers. Writers went into great detail on how Northside's residents used the ropes, Paris Green, or a bridge to end their lives. Alleghenians grinned and joked about the ridicule being heaped upon their German residents until a poem by Arthur Bogoin, entitled In Allegheny, appeared in the Pittsburgh Gazette Times. Now, don't forget... This is the time period where Pittsburgh and Allegheny City were rivals. You know, sports rivals and everything else rivals. Apparently, even suicide rivals. Like <laughs> Cleveland and Pittsburgh, only instead yeah. of being 250 miles apart, you're 250 feet apart. That's right. That's right. So uh, so in kind of a joking way, in the Pittsburgh Gazette Times, this poem appears. In Allegheny, 
Short is the span of life in Allegheny. Brightly gleams the butcher knife in Allegheny. Filled with remorse and beer, another citizen, dear, dear, has slit himself from ear to ear in Allegheny, who speaks of love of life or hope in Allegheny. Who's this? Another dangling rope in Allegheny. Another brother bowed with toil and grief upon earth's sordid soil has shuffled off this mortal coil in Allegheny. Wide open stands the druggist's door, convenient is the poison's door in Allegheny. Brawls and rude domestic spats and jim jams bred of frequent bats led often to rough on rats in Allegheny. Deep are the sorrows of the soul in Allegheny, and dark and deep the rivers roll in Allegheny. Filled with penance and booze, off come hat, coat, vest, and shoes, and one more citizen we lose in Allegheny. So not exactly uh, Shel Silverstein, <laughs> but, you know. Well, he was pretty dark sometimes with the, some of his writing. But, he yeah, actually kind of reminds me of Shel Silverstein, correct. Um, Alleghenians were incensed by the Allegheny e- Evening Record in a page one editorial. Say, punsters of the Pittsburgh newspapers have said that Allegheny is composed principally of Dutch citizens who are known chiefly as being slow and then with a tendency to commit suicide, the slightest provocation. These unpleasant remarks reiterated daily on a poor return for Allegheny being the second largest home district in both territory and population, and furnishing a large proportion of the patronage of the same newspapers and advertisers who support them. Allegheny is not exclusively German. We have Scotch and Irish elements in our citizenship. The Germans are hard-headed businessmen, the Pittsburgh papers would say, and that these qualities seem slow to the Pittsburgh paragraphers is unfortunate for the later. Allegheny's business and financial leaders may be slow, but the sheriff, it is noticed, is not nearly so busy on this side of the Allegheny as he is on the other side. And nor can Allegheny boast as many bank failures as our bigger sister. Let our friends across the river remember that a lie like a habit grows by what it feeds on. How about that? So that's a strange tale of the competing newspapers uh, kind of egging each other on when it came to uh, these bizarre, dark suicides. Now, interestingly enough, it's always been a kind of a town of superstition and uh, unusual happenings, Uh, whether that be uh, one of the most prolific female serial killers, Martha Grinder, who we talked about, I believe, in one of our uh, maybe true crime episode or one of the episodes we have. Um, But you also had the birth of spiritual phenomenon, and psychics uh, living in the town by the 1840s and 1850s, which is very early. I mean, the Fox sisters are considered the first kind of uh, uh, psychics, uh, per se, and, and that was uh, in New York, you know, not in anywhere near Pittsburgh, but uh, they were around the same time period. And these were kind of wrappings, they called, <laughs> not uh, Wiz Khalifa rappers, but um, things like hit the table once for yes, hit the table two times for no. You know, these types of things. You know? I know a lot of the odd and mysterious stuff we've talked about, a lot of it seems to emanate from the north side. Well, in, even when it's kind of, not in jest, but that clickbait we did where the two yeah. um, funerals kind of crash into each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that. I know Pittsburgh had its great fire, but it seems like all the kind of kooky stuff happens <laughs> across the river. That's right. I mean, you had uh, things like the birth of the Ferris wheel, you know, George... Ferris was there, Martha, you know, Martha, um, 
grinder and all these strange tales, you know. And you're right. Yeah, there there is strange and unusual uh, things that were mainly coming out of the north side and not so much Pittsburgh. One of these strange things was the story of Father Mollinger. So do you know about this guy, following Father Mollinger? So no. He was an interesting character. And uh, what, uh, what William Rimmel wrote about him, uh, I'm going to read to you, but it's um, – it's interesting because he's uh, it's kind of a, an enigma, a mystery, this man, Father Mollinger. He founded many churches here in Pennsylvania and uh, all across the world, to tell you the truth, but um, specifically in Pittsburgh, including St. Teresa's Church in the North Hills and Highland Presbyterian Church. He was also one of the founding fathers. Uh, but he is more known for a church that he built in Troy Hill. And he was known as the Healing Priest of Troy Hill. And the story goes, the borough of Duquesne, which is now called Troy Hill, was winding up its first year as the seventh ward of the city of Allegheny back in 1868 when Reverend S.T. Mullinger was assigned to care for the spiritual needs of about 50 families in the new Holy Name of Jesus Church at Clark and Hazel Streets. Nobody knew the bearded priest, but it wasn't long before his name was known throughout the entire world. For Father Mollinger aroused the ear of prudes in the day by starting construction of a home of the Good Shepherd that was to be used as a shelter for fallen women. Social groups protested against bringing such people together, even for the sake of reform. They called it a dangerous experiment, but the priest stood his ground. The furor over the home had hardly died down before the priest was back in the news again. This time, Father Mollinger was manufacturing cough medicines, tonics, and other medicines in a drugstore that he had built on the hillside in the back of the church, overlooking Spring Garden Avenue. The bishop frowned on this, and so did the medical society, but the priest produced records to show that he had studied medicine in Italy and was a graduate of the University of Milan. Before six months have passed, hundreds of claims had that the priest's medicines and his other healing powers had cured them. <laughs> Word of the spread, and before long, the streets of the church in all of Troy Hill was jam-packed with men, women, children from all ages, from all over the world. Father Mullinger urged them to all pray and have faith. In fact, I, I did read a story that's not included in this, this story that I'm reading, but um, people from South America would literally walk or take caravans to come see this Faller Mollinger in Troy Hill. From South America. From South America. <laughs> okay. Um, during the later part of the 1890s, Father Mollinger went to the German residents of Troy Hill and surrounding communities with plans of building a brand new chapel, not only for worship, but to hold a very unusual thing. And that is bones and other relics of saints and everything that has to do with Christianity um, to be gathered uh, and sometimes procured illegally and legally, uh, a la Indiana Jones style, <laughs> bringing some of these things back to Troy Hill to put in this church. Included in there is a piece of what they call the true cross. Apparently the actual cross, <laughs> right? A sliver of wood or whatever. Yeah. Um, the uh, But there are bones. In fact, is the largest collection of religious relics outside of Vatican City. So... Uh, Hundreds, hundreds of saints, pieces of them, skull, fragments, bones, fingers, toes, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, are there in Troy Hill today. Um, you could actually go there and see some of it, and uh, it's really all, you know, of course, a matter of belief. But 
his journeys going and finding all this stuff and bringing it here to Pittsburgh must be some kind of fascinating tale. I mean, think about it. 1880s, 1890s, he's running around like Indiana Jones, <laughs> collecting all these weird relics you know, from all over the world, not just, you know, Italy. And I think it's kind of funny how history somewhat repeats itself. You know, you talked about how the people from South America would come all the way to Pittsburgh to be healed by this priest. And now the Diocese of Pittsburgh, I think for over 60 years, has had this foundation, this maternity ward and orphanage in Peru, where mm. they've helped countless children and families. And there was this one priest, a local priest, who went down years ago and said he was only going to stay for five years. And it ended up, he fell in love with the place so much that he spent his entire life there and wow. was, was buried there. Wow. And to this day, the people in the Diocese of Pittsburgh own that in hmm. the sense that every year we collect money in the church and it 100% of it gets sent down to Peru and it, that's what it goes to. Wow. Interesting. That's in South America, so. Well, yeah. I mean, so, well, I mean, it has to do with all these early people, you know. Like, Without the bones it, and stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, speaking of the bones, he offered to contribute about $75,000 in the 1890s towards a chapel if the people would meet the same goal. But the thrifty Germans refused to go along with the idea. So the priest decided to build the chapel himself. For the next three years, the priest struggled with the construction of this chapel. His religious treasures were even left outside of the elements. And including, by the way, uh, in not only these uh, remains and relics of saints, he also had life-size reproductions, life-size sculptures of every station of the cross <laughs> that are also held at the same church. Um, he, in fact, purchased about $30,000 worth of crates just to hold the stuff outside while they were building it for a couple years. During the building work, the crowds continued to make their way up the Troy Hill, crippled, blind, ill, all-seeing cures. And to each, he had the same message, pray and have the faith. Some cast aside their crutches and canes, and before long, the church and unfinished chapel were filled with them. After countless delays, the chapel of St. Anthony was opened on the Feast of St. Anthony on June 13th, 1892. Three days later, Falling Mullinger died. In fact, I read his obituary in the newspaper, and hundreds of people were gathered outside waiting for him just to touch him. You know, they believed at this point that he was like a prophet. And uh, were, you know, just touch, being near him would essentially cure you of any kind of disease. And uh, people, I mean, it was almost a riot that happened up there. Uh, they don't know what to do. Uh, people, like I said, were traveling from so far away just to have this man pass away. It was a, a, a shameful thing. But, you know, it happens. And the drugstore where Father Mullinger manufactured all of his cure-alls has long since vanished. So as the home of the Good Shepherd and throngs of the lame, blind, and ill no longer crowd Troy Hill streets. But tiny bands of the faithful will still visit the chapel, and the bearded priest had labored long and hard to build. So interesting that his legacy still kind of remains, but a little bit in a different way. Um, a lot of people don't know about him, per se, and more about his relics, because they are, uh, you know, if you look at, like, the top ten weird things in Pittsburgh, that's one of them. <laughs> Yeah, You know, <laughs> so, because uh, it is, it is unusual. Well, one of the best stories I found in this book, the Allegheny Storybook, happened to be about our good old friend, Uncle John Brashear. Okay. Yeah, he had, um, if you haven't heard his story, I, I recommend you go back and yes. in our archives and look for that, because it's a great, great story. Yeah, he's such a cool guy. Um, 
a happy kind of go lucky, you know, didn't really uh, care about finances per se. Yeah, didn't know how to make money. He had to have people <laughs> tell him, like, you can't stop doing, stop giving that away. And this story you could tell is absolutely true because just knowing about who John Brashear was and just reading, we read from his autobiography, uh, just the kind of character he was. This totally fits in with his story. It's a great story. <laughs> so, in his lifetime, John Brashear, the most beloved astronomer, brought light, knowledge, and love to everything and every person his dynamic life touched. Although the Southsiders claim Uncle John uh, because he spent many years doing their doing his basic scientific research work, he loved he was loved throughout the entire city. But this is the story of the scientist when he lived in Old Allegheny. For months, Uncle John's wife, Phoebe, had been trying to get her husband to do some much-needed painting around the house. She was especially interested in the flower boxes that graced the front yard of the Perrysville Avenue home. They had deemed it to paint for several years, and every time she th- she brought up the subject, John would evade the issue by talking about the new lens that he was planning at his shop. One afternoon, Mrs. Brashear dropped into Uncle John's shop and said, John, you must do something about these flower boxes. The neighbors are beginning to talk. It's like when I was at the store this morning, I overheard two women discussing you and your our front yard. They said that John Brashear is so lazy, he never cleans up his place and just hides in the shop and watches the stars all the time. <laughs> um, before she could say another word, Uncle John stopped what he was doing, hurried out of the shop, and bought as much paint as he possibly can. An hour later, the astronomer was busy painting the flower boxes and a dozen other things that Phoebe had talked about. Having a lot of paint left over, he decided to freshen up the flower box of his neighbors across the street. And then on his way home, he noticed this drab-looking police call box and gave it a coat of nice, brand-new, fresh white paint. The box looked so nice that he decided to paint the fire alarm boxes. And then he noticed the mailbox was all kind of peeling, so he decided to give that a coat of paint, too. Wow, how much paint did he have? <laughs> right. While the city said nothing about his painting of the police and fireboxes, they just repainted them. However, Uncle Sam howled long and loud and threatened Uncle John with tampering with government property. He became... Uh, the center of a series of long letters accusing him of everything except for treason. <laughs> right. One letter even threatened him with imprisonment for damaging governmental property. Public officials learned of this controversy and they stepped in. When the noise quieted down, the mailboxes were restored to its governmental color. Phoebe put her arms around her husband and said, John, remember what you always say. Somewhere beneath the stars is the work that you alone are meant to do. You are no painter. Just stick to your beloved stars. You know? <laughs> so that was like that's totally that's definitely happened i can tell you know just based on his uh his character so old allegheny of course now we're going to do another episode about allegheny observatory and samuel langley because his accomplishments are phenomenal and we've only just kind of touched the surface on a few of them including in our john Brashear episode however how do you think people kept time in the old days the sun well Let's go, yes, but let's talk about 1900. Well, of course, it's Pittsburgh, so right. the sun wasn't really... 1900, you had clocks. You did have clocks. People had watches. But how did were, how were the times set? You know, by, by usually the biggest clock around could dictate the time. The one under Kaufman's. Kaufman's clock. <laughs> right, Kaufman's clock. <laughs> now, uh, what was it? This one in Old Allegheny was the clock tower at the old Carnegie Library. Okay. And that for years... When that thing hit noon, you'd all, everybody would pull out their watch and make sure that their watch was telling the correct time. Sometimes, Synchronize your watches. Right. You'd have 12.03 or whatever. You had 11.59 or whatever. You'd try to set it as close as you could. 
And that comes a story about this guy they call the Clock Watcher. So there's a lot of weird characters in Allegheny, and this is one of them. For years, August Locke, the jeweler, was the guardian of the clock. It was his job to see that it kept time and sounded each quarter hour. August and his assistant, Harry Weiss, seemed to be the only persons in town who could keep the aging clockworks moving. Once when the clock stopped, a city besieged with calls. What was the matter? So August and Harry were called to climb into the stairs of the tower. They tinkered for hours, but the clock wouldn't work. Then the next day, the jeweler discovered what was wrong and started the clock on its way with the aid of just a safety pin. With the death of the jeweler, little attention was paid to the aged timepiece. But when it broke down again, the light on its face was extinguished. City officials decided it was too expensive to repair and decided to forget it altogether. But the old Alleghenies came together to rescue it and forced its restoration. It was electrified, but still didn't sound on the hour. During the years the clock sounded the hour, though, thousands paused to check their watches with the aged timepiece. But the strangest of these clock watchers was a character known only as Dutchtown Louie. You could set your watch by his daily appearance. Winter, summer, rain, shine, Louie, with his watch in hand, stood at Ohio and Federal Streets, waiting for the clock to sound the noon hour. When the clock sounded the last bong, Louie would nod his head, tuck his watch into his pocket, and head down East Ohio Street for his home in the old north side. Merchants used to watch for Louie. It was on the opposite side of the street that a man named Dave Hollander would step from the doorway of the store and yell, What's the correct time, Louie? And without a word, Louie would cross the street, pull out his watch, and show the storekeeper, smile, and just walk on, never saying a word. Ed Lang was the next to shout out the question to then, then Louie Mendel. And each time, Louie would go through the same ritual without saying a single word. And so on and so on, the self-appointed clock watcher stopped at various stores as he wended his way through the district. Louie and most of the merchants of the day had passed on. The library clock no longer sounds. A few of the old-timers still pause to check their watches as they pass by, but the majority hurry on without hardly a glance. Recently, I asked one of the, little, the last old-time Dutchtown merchants about Louis, the clock watcher. His face broke in a wide grin. Those merchants sure had a lot of fun kidding Louis around, didn't he? But when I look back now, I wonder about how many of them knew that Louis's watch had no clockworks of its own. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. That's the story of the clock watcher of Allegheny. Good old Louie. Yeah. Here's a, a cool, th- you know, we know about different mayors of the city of Pittsburgh, um, you know, including infamous ones like Joseph Barker and, mm-hmm. and current ones even. Uh, but what do you know about the mayors of Allegheny City? Remember, I don't know 70 much. 70 years. I feel like it's kind of like the Confederacy. Like, you don't really know about <laughs> right. The- <laughs> right. It's all hidden, you know. Uh, well, not anymore. So I'm going to tell you some colorful tales of Allegheny mayors. Um, old Allegheny had many colorful mayors during its 67 years of existence as a city, but some made quite a name for themselves with their crusades. Others were noted for their political maneuvering. One was impeached and served three months in jail. General William Robinson Jr., who you probably know from General Robinson Street fame, had the distinction of not only being the city's first mayor, but also the first uh, European born in Allegheny. He was credited not only designing the city seal but also being instrumental in bringing the railroad to the city millions remember stephen foster the beloved composer but few know that his father 
was in fact the mayor of Allegheny City back in 1842. In fact, that's where Foster wrote his very first love song, Open Thy Lattice Love. Hmm. Jacob Stuckrath, a tanner, was inaugurated into office with cannon fire by a group of enthusiastic followers in 1858. The cannons were so loud they blast blew out of the windows of his home on North Avenue. He ordered for the arrest of all the people that were celebrating, but then later rescinded the arrest, learning that they were some of his closest friends doing the cannon firing. <laughs> and in fact, he fighted, invited them into his house and to the cannon and blasted it straight from his parlor. Since you know, the windows were already gone, right? Yeah. 1872, Mayor A.P. Callow not only chose all, closed all the gambling houses and lottery shops, but also banished the so-called risque magazines that featured showgirls from the city's barbershops. Mayor Charles Geyer's term in office was probably the stormiest in Allegheny's history. It was marked with one fight after another uh, with council. Once council, once council banned smoking in council chambers, and when the mayor appeared puffing a stogie, he was refused admission to the, the chambers. The mayor retaliated the next day by ordering the health department to remove all of the council's brass railings and brass doorknobs on the grounds that they were a menace to public health. <laughs> brass doorknobs. Right. Allegheny was once dubbed the holy city when Mayor Richard T. Person, uh, Pearson ruled back in 1887. Little Dicky, as he was referred to by the newspapers, not only shut all the stores and shops on Sunday, enforcing blue laws, but also banned the sale of Sunday newspapers. Mayor Hugh Fleming in 1877 led a band of citizens which stopped and searched streetcars for suspicious characters and contraband during railroad riots. And during the cotton mill riots, he left a group of citizens armed with wagon spokes and halting the roving band of strikers from attacking the cotton mills. One volunteer firefighters went on strike for higher wages and refused to fight a fire that threatened half a dozen businesses and residence blo blocks back in 1849. Mayor Jonathan Rutsch headed a bucket brigade, and saved the city from total destruction. <laughs> wow. Mayor, so, Yeah, I know. Mayor James Wyman had the distinction of not only being elected mayor four times, but also being the only mayor to be impeached and serve a term in jail for malfeasance. Mayor Wyman was also fighting with the taxpayers and city council, and when a group of citizens demanded that he furnish them with a, a statement of the city's financial status, he refused them by saying, it's none of your damn business. In 1886, he announced he was purchasing a patrol wagon, horses to draw it, and a stable to house them. Citizens fearing a tax increase threatened to obtain a court injunction, injunction to block the proposed. And Wyman countered by ordering construction of the patrol wagon on Saturday when the courts were closed. And on Monday morning when the courts reconvened, the patrol wagon was now in service. Somebody who didn't really care what people had to say about him. Um, but I am going to read one more tale here. Okay. And now there, there's so many people uh, that have to do with um, with old Allegheny. I mean, I could go on forever. I mean, almost read this entire book to you. <laughs> and, and I didn't want it to be an audiobook episode. But I, I tell you what, these stories, I mean, are just so great. I mean, like just from what we've heard so far. And he goes into uh, talking about what discipline was like back in old Allegheny City, superstitions, cellars, right? What it was like to have a new pair of pants, long pants for the first time. This man was in the generation where um, all children just wore knickers, right? So just to have a pair of pants was like a big deal. Well, knickers, was that just like 
ones that went up down to your knees. Yeah. yeah. And um, so he was saying, like, you know. Even you, in the wintertime? Even, <laughs> yes, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, long socks is what you would wear. Uh, so to have a pair of pants was something of an ordeal. Of course, mothers would take you to Boggs and Buell or something like that and try to get you measured. And, you know, you'd want the cool gray looking suit and she'd get you navy blue, you know. Or, and so it was, it was always this kind of fight, you know, uh, of going on. But it was interesting to see um, just all these memories that this man had. Uh, even things about people ringing bells, you know, just uh, down the street, you know, to ring a bell and like how you could hear it all over. Um, well, what's the name of this book again? Allegheny Story. Okay. Now I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna leave you with the story because I could keep on going, but I am. I have to edit somewhere, <laughs> right? And that is the story of not Allegheny Phil, but good old Pittsburgh Phil. Oh, okay. Okay, so now there's a couple Pittsburgh Phils. There's uh, a mob guy, you know, who was called Wait, Pittsburgh Phil. Did you Phil. mean to say Punxsutawney? No. <laughs> yeah, Pittsburgh Phil. And uh, oddly enough about Punxsutawney, you know, since we are in February uh, while recording this, they're, uh, the very first Punxsutawney Phil, of course, was uh, celebrated. But at the same time, there really was a Pittsburgh Phil or a Pittsburgh Groundhog, oddly enough. And uh, the kicker of the story is after they would go on the Groundhog hunt, and yank him out of his hole, you know, to see if he had uh, saw a shadow or not. The uh, the end of the celebration was the whole town participating in a groundhog dinner where they would cook the rodents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that included in Punxsutawney. People think uh, we treat the groundhog bad now. <laughs> right. Because uh, PETA wanted us to replace... Punxsutawney Phil with an electronic Phil that could actually tell the weather. That's that's right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I do have to pull up my inflation calculator here for a second because this uh, this fact blew my mind about this Pittsburgh Phil. So the first Pittsburgh Phil, he was a, um, well, I mean, the most recent Pittsburgh Phil, because there's multiple ones, but the uh, the most recent was more of a mob boss involved with crime and had nothing to do with Pittsburgh and never even stepped foot in Pittsburgh. He just got the name Pittsburgh Phil. But the Pittsburgh Phil that I'm talking about is a guy whose real name was George E. Smith. And if you've ever driven through Uniondale Cemetery. Where's uh, that at? In Northside, um, you know, farther up Federal Street. Um, you'll see uh, right where Brighton Road kind of meets um, that there's lots of people buried in Uniondale. I mean, it's a very famous cemetery, a lot of famous people buried there, uh, especially famous famous Northsiders, including this guy. Uh, and the unique thing with him is that he has a full life-size statue of himself there, uh, you know, bronze statue that's still there to this day. And a lot of people just drive past it not knowing who this man is. They see the name Pittsburgh Phil, but, you know, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, how could he have a, that much money to build this gigantic bronze statue? Like Andrew Carnegie didn't build a statue of himself. Like, why did this guy build a statue of himself? And I'm going to tell you. Fame is a fickle lady. One day you're riding the crest of popularity, and a week later you are forgotten. A new figure has taken your place. Pittsburgh Phil was that figure. Back in the early 1800s, he was known from coast to coast as the biggest gambler of his day. It was common for him to win or lose thousands of dollars and eight in 1890s. Holy smokes. In one day. <laughs> and once, he even won $75,000 on one of the horses that he was training at a stable. Wait, this wasn't down at the rivers. Right. 
at Rivers, but not, uh, <laughs> not you Rivers. know, the Rivers, yes. Today, he is all but forgotten except for a hand time, handful of old-time gamblers. Pittsburgh Phil's real name was George Ellsworth Smith. He came from a respectable family, and other than being a professional gambler, he had a fine reputation. When his father died in December of 1873, George and his brother William dropped out of school and went to work in the Armstrong Brothers Cork Factory on Monongahela Waterfront downtown. It was while working here at the Cork Factory that George made his first bet in a combination pool room and horse room called the White House on Fifth Avenue that was operated by Sam Hymans. A week later, he started a book of his own, taking 50-cent bets from the workers in the cork factory. His Saturdays were spent in the pool room and bookie shops like Hurdy's on the old Monongahela house, or Price's in the Diamond. He knew nothing about horse racing, but enjoyed listening to the telegraph operator in Price's describes the races as they were run. George was 17 years old when he made his first bet on a horse and won. From then on, he made regular bets, and within two years, he had run his winnings to about $5,000. So by the time he was 19 years old, he was already up $9,000, you know, $5,000. And inside of five years, George Smith was indeed a professional gambler and bookmaker. One spring, a friend invited him to the Kentucky Derby. It was the first time that George had seen an actual horse race. The betting at the track whetted his appetite for more. It was in the pool room of William Silverbill Riley in Chicago that he was actually given the name that made him famous. When he gave his name as George Smith from Pittsburgh when making a sizable bet, Riley said, we've got too many Smiths here already. I'm going to call you Pittsburgh Phil. <laughs> and from that day on, he was known as Pittsburgh Phil. And he made his name a household world in racing circles over the next 20 years. It wasn't long before George was winning huge sums wagering Runners from pool rooms began trailing him. The instant he made a bet, word was sent to other rooms, and the odds of his choice would drop. George counted by slipping friends' money to bet for him, and when the bookies discovered his latest method of operation and began cutting the odds, he headed to New York City. He started off cautiously in the big city, but it wasn't long before his true success at picking winners attracted the attention, and he was being followed by runners even as far from Chicago. He decided to acquire a racing stable of his own by this time period, and the suspicion of one of his jockeys in 1903 for a questionable ride, along with poor health, forced George to give up racing. And two, year, two years later, he died at a tuberculosis sanitarium in Asheville, North Carolina, hmm. at the age of 46. His body was brought to Allegheny to be buried in his family vault in Uniondale, where a life-size statue holding a racing forum stands. So... According to Wikipedia, by the way, at the time of his death in 1905, he had amassed a fortune in 1905 monies of $3.2 million. Pure gambling. That is comparable today, adjusted for inflation, to $92 million. Holy moly. That's uh, <laughs> yes. Can you imagine if he was betting today with legal yeah. gambling and he yeah. would probably have his own like website or company. Yeah, that guy literally knew how to pick a winner. There was no trick to it. I mean, well, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, he was, or there was a trick to it. He, he just, he was the only one that knew. In fact, a lot of his maxims, they call it, in the gambling world, there's a thing called maxim or kind of like your method to picking winners, uh, is still used to this day. His his foresight, on, and he would literally go to the source stables when it came to horse racing, 
Watch the, how they performed in the mud. Watch how they performed in the day. Watch how they performed when it was 40 degrees out. How they performed when it was 70 degrees out. You know, the, the length of their hoofs. You know, the, the size, the weight of each animal. I mean, like, he was that specific. And he literally just weeded out the losers and was able to pick a winner. And uh, became one of the most successful gamblers of all time. <laughs> so he didn't just go and pick the horse that was named, like, Lucky... Lucky Larry. Seven. That's right. That's right. In fact, the year after he died, uh, they did a tribute to him uh, at the Kentucky Derby, and the horse uh, named George Smith, <laughs> right, won the Kentucky Derby in 1913 in his honor. So how about that's kind of cool. And this is all a guy from Allegheny City. All a guy born right there in Pittsburgh, Allegheny City. Well, you know, uh, sorry, not Pittsburgh, Allegheny City. And I am going to make a big fuss about uh, trying to mention now, you know, um, that this is a separate city. This is a whole new thing. And, you know, when I talk about these stories, I'm going to say it occurred in Allegheny City. Just like, you know, if I'm talking about family trees, you know, Yugoslavia or something like that. Yugoslavia didn't exist, you know, more than 150 years ago. So I'm going to refer to it by the name that they, the people, the stories when they happened there, I will refer to it as that. Well, so you've mentioned that there's people that are petitioning today still. Yeah. Yeah. get the name changed back. Yes. Don't forget, in 1907, when Allegheny City was annexed by Pittsburgh, nobody in Allegheny City wanted this to happen. This was kind of like a, uh, a thing that was brought up by the city of Pittsburgh in order to gain more you know, citizenship so they could get more money from governments you know, for census tracts and things like this and uh, more representation um, and did away with our whole city police force, Allegheny City police force, Allegheny Fire Department, they had the, like I mentioned, the Diocese of Allegheny, the Diocese of Pittsburgh. I mean, they were head-to-head. Of course, the sports teams, the most famous uh, football you know, player, uh, that Pudge Huffelfinger, the guy who, you know, the first paid player, that was the Allegheny Athletic Association against Pittsburgh. You know, so these were, um, uh, you know, rivals, and uh, nobody was really for it. I mean, they were... Well, how did- I'm sure there were some people, but you know, it was uh, it, the the law made it that out of both the cities, the majority of the votes combined would make that decision. And Pittsburgh was pu- like pushing so much for this annexa- annexation of the papers that a majority of people in the city of Pittsburgh voted for it, and therefore outweighed just because there was by this time period hundreds and hundreds of thousands of citizens in the city of Pittsburgh and only maybe 100,000 over in Allegheny City. So, like, even if 100% of the vote for Allegheny City was for not a- annexing um, the majority of the votes because of the population of Pit- the city of Pittsburgh outweighed that. Mm. And as soon as it happened, I mean, within a year, they were petitioning to try to get it back. And, uh, and that lasted for a long period of time. I don't know when the the last successful petition or campaign to actually annex it back uh, or secede from it, or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, it would be interesting. But th- think about it; they did it today. All the stadiums are over in Allegheny City, right? Um, the Carnegie Science Center, you know, all of um, you know everything that's going over there in the north side would be a whole new city, and that would be, uh, complicate things, I think, a little bit. Oh yeah, um, especially uh, remember back in the day they had that bridge. You know, the bridges would of course would go over, but they'd be toll bridges. So if you wanted to go over to Allegheny or from Allegheny into Pittsburgh, you had to pay. You couldn't just like, I mean, you could if you had a canoe, you know, paddle across the river. But 
other than that, you had to pay if you wanted to go in one of these towns. And so it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. In fact, there's, there's tales in here about the bridges and the tolls and people even having illegal canoeing sessions, <laughs> kind of like the Ubers of the, uh, you know, jitney. 19th century. Yeah, exactly. Some jitney uh, canoeing. <laughs> right. Yeah. So lots of cool tales, uh, mysterious, you know, odd, mysterious, and fascinating tales of Allegheny along with Pittsburgh. So we're not going to forget our brother city, our sister city, uh, the city of your old Allegheny. If you have tales, right, of old Allegheny, ones that are specific to Allegheny City, ones like this, or interested in this book and want to find out more information, make sure you reach out to us. Uh, you know, drop us a line on uh, social media, you know, anywhere you find us. Email, of course, oddpittsburgh at gmail.com. Um, Lots of interesting tales to come. I got, uh, like I said, we're going to do Allegheny Observatory soon. and uh, I know we have a sweet episode planned. Yeah, yeah, we do have a good stuff. sweet episode. Yes, that actually involves Allegheny City, yeah. believe it or not. So it all ties back, you know. Uh, but, yeah, so if you have any good ideas, uh, want to hear uh, questions, of course. Well, I know we've gone, we've not answered questions <laughs> Uh, and I've gotten questions. A lot of them are very specific. That's the only reason why I don't bring a lot of them up because people are like, at the corner of you know Highland and and here, my great great grandfather had a barber shop. Is there any photos that exist? You know, so that, that's basically the questions I get every day. But um, there has some, been some very very interesting and unusual uh, things I've I've uh, been getting asked. And I need to do some research on them. So uh, once I get that research done, we will be sharing the answers to some of the, your most unusual, odd questions. And, uh, and it was funny as I was just in the, uh, talked to a bunch of fourth graders and, uh, you know, I, I told them all these stories, the same stories I t- I'm telling you, I, I tell those to the fourth graders and, uh, hundreds of them. And, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to see how, um, you can use these stories. Like I mentioned in previous episodes to inspire others. And, uh, I have with me, uh, I didn't bring them inside the studio, but, I have in my possession uh, all these thank you notes from the kids, all, you know, hand-drawn, hand-worded you know worded and everything. And I tell you what, man, it's like, first of all, it's fantastic because these kids were, like, just so interested, you know, in learning about our city's past, but also how you could inspire people to look out this information for themselves. I told them, flat, you know, flat out, I go, I did not go to school for history, <laughs> You know, I have zero, zero degrees in in um, research or history. I just love it. And if you love something, don't let school get in the way. And other teachers were like in shock, you know, <laughs> including my own son's teacher. But I go, and I even said my famous quote that I got from Mark Twain, which I probably shouldn't have done, which was, I never let school interfere with my education. And that's by Mark Twain. And uh, I found that quote out myself when I was in high school. And I'm like, well, that's it. <laughs> I don't, no more math for me. And now I'm going to just learn about what I want to learn about and try to, to learn as much as I possibly can. And I, so I told these kids, I'm like, look, if you want to learn about whatever it is, you know, in my case, it happened to be about Pittsburgh. Um, just go out and do it. It's that easy, you know, and then share it. And then hopefully you can inspire someone else to start looking into that, too. Well, and especially that I mean, if it is in school, if it is something you hear about in school, and it's only a, a day or a couple chapters of a, of right. a book, 
but you hold on to that and keep that with you and kind of try yeah. to or, or, you know they, they hear about tales about you know there's they, they learn about a little bit about world war ii and and the you know world war one and of course you you hear about the revolutionary war you know by seven you know by by fourth grade uh but did you ever hear about the battle of the wilderness that happened literally down the street <laughs> you know or like the siege of fort pitt and all these like cool things that happen right here in our own backyard. We can literally walk there today, and go f- explore these old battlefields and and see history and experience it, like breathe it in, you know, uh, with the elements. And uh, and that did change it a little bit because uh, you know the War of 1812 seems so distant to a fourth grader, you know. But you tell somebody that well to us too. At, well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> for us too. But you know, you tell a fourth grader that they, next time they go to Kennywood. You know Daniel Boone and George Washington and Edward Braddock and and all these heroes on the French side as well, like that Daniel de de Beju and and all these Native Americans and this epic war, this battle happens right there. You know, um, you know, like I had no idea about that as a kid. Have fun in the racer. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, look out for Gertie's revenge. Right, that should be a good. That should be a good. next ride at Kennywood. Gertie's revenge. Um. Hopefully it has not related to uh, Montezuma's revenge, but <laughs> yes. So, anyways, I leave you with that. Um, you have any questions, any cool factoids you want me to learn uh, and share? Um, I, I will absolutely do that. So please get a hold of us. Um, you know where to reach us. And until next time, that's it, Fort Pitt.